Sunday, October 31st. Wow, so today is Halloween. I used to love Halloween as a boy in San Antonio growing up there and uh, going through our little community near Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, there were a lot of kids out and the streets were packed and uh, you received all kinds of food and I, I thought it was like the best day ever. And I would try to make my stash last a, a long, long time. And my favorites, of course, would go pretty fast. And then the others, you know, that, that hard candy that's not chocolate at all that I'm not sure why people <clears throat> eat. Well, uh, you know, everybody has their preference. I get that. And so that would be around for a while still. But it's uh, one of the great traditions with Halloween, of course, is doing things like our fall festival tonight, uh, playing games with the kids, giving candy to the kids, and um, uh, dressing up in costumes, all of those things. Another uh, tradition is scary movies. My wife, Joyce, she loves scary uh, movies. And the scarier, the more suspenseful, the better. And, uh, of course, this past week or two, we've seen lots of those on, come on TV. Uh, I mean, like the earliest Frankenstein movies, back when movies were new. Um, and The Blob, of course. We used to have Project Terror every Friday night at 1030 in San Antonio. And they would show some a scary movie, one of which was... Um, the blob. Not look, doesn't look too scary when I see it these days, but it seemed really scary then, uh, back then. And of course, now you have lots and lots of newer ones and sequels and one scary movie after another spoofs on scary movies. I mean, it is, there's a world of tradition out there involving, uh, Halloween. And when you talk about doing things that are scary, some of those are more difficult than others. In our college uh, young adult class this morning, and in some of our other adult classes over the past uh, few weeks perhaps, we've talked about the story of David and Goliath. And when David stood against the giant, nine feet something tall, Goliath, this seasoned uh, military man, and now this young teenage boy who only knew to protect his father's sheep. But that was enough. And as he stood against this man, Goliath, he stood with great faith. But I'm sure that, too, was a scary thing. We know how the story would end. David, by faith, knew how the story would end. But it hadn't ended yet. Well, it seems more and more the culture around us considers disciples of Jesus Christ to be the bad guys. We've been talking about this being uh, good, bad guys over the last several weeks. Not everybody in our society, in our community, in our circles view Christians that way, but some do. And more and more we're seeing a drift in our uh, society, in our culture away from respect and even agreement with biblical values and biblical principles and those who espouse to them seek to live them in their own lives, first of all, and then are willing to try to share them and pass along that hope and joy that they feel in obeying the Word of God to others. But more and more, that's something that's frowned upon. 
Disciples of Jesus Christ seem more and more to be considered the bad guys, and that's kind of scary. We're not used to that. We're not used to people looking down on us because of our faith. We're used to that being something that's not only culturally acceptable, but culturally encouraged and opening doors for us rather than closing them. And being something that enhances our opportunities rather than something that threatens those opportunities. More and more we see disciples of Jesus Christ being considered the bad guys. But if that's the case, again, our Lord calls us to be good bad guys. We have no control, really. Uh, That's almost true. We have little control over whether our community or the people around us consider us good guys or bad guys because of our Christian values and conviction. To a great degree, that's up to them. Now, the reason why I think to some degree it's also up to us is because there is something that we can do that can encourage them to think better of us. And there's also things that we can do, as you know, that will cause them to think less of us. And... Deservedly so. We'll talk more about that in the next week or two. But to be good bad guys means that we are going to try to live faithfully to Jesus Christ in the midst of that culture and that society, however they respond, whatever they think about those values, we're going to hold on to them. But we're going to hold on to them in respectful, loving, considerate, humble ways rather than some of the ways that we see so many reacting against these days that are more arrogant, more judgmental, um, more unloving than loving. Unlike anything that we see in the Gospels, in Jesus' life, with those who considered him to be a bad guy, or in the life of the early church, the New Testament Christians, we don't see that attitude at all. Our Lord calls us to be good bad guys, but Jesus also warns us following him comes with a price. If we are going to commit to being disciples of Jesus Christ, that may very well mean that some of those around us, some of those in our family, some of those that we go to school with, some that we work with, some of our relationships that we've known for a long time, they no longer consider us to be good guys. We're now the bad guys. And that's part of the price that Jesus told us from the start we may have to pay. Not necessarily, but very possibly. And more and more, it seems, very likely. A couple of scriptures are on the screen there. Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of the other things that needs and things that we have in this life, they'll they'll be added to us as well. And so we can have those things and the kingdom if we seek the kingdom first. Some have said that if we seek those things and put them as the king and God in our lives, then we lose both. The blessing here and now and eternal life as well. But even more clearly in passages like Luke 9, Jesus says, Look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple then you're going to have to deny yourself and you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. There's a price to be paid. 
And that price may mean that you have to sacrifice some things. That's what denying yourself entails. (laughs) Denying yourself means that you don't always get something that you would really like to have. Something that perhaps you even feel like you deserve to have. Denying yourself means exactly that. Following Christ may come with a price. Taking up our cross and following Him. So a few things about that today. About the scary part of being the good bad guys. First of all, being a good bad guy may put you at the bottom. It may put you at the bottom of the social scale. It may put you at the bottom in, at work or at school or in family discussions or in relationships. It may be something that causes you to lose ground rather than to gain ground. Are you willing to do that? In Matthew chapter 20, this familiar passage that uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples when they're trying to be at the top. And Jesus says, look, you're, what you're doing is what the world does. That's how the world measures greatness. That's not how God measures greatness. Jesus says, if you want to be great, ultimately great, then you need to be last. You need to be the servant, not the master. You need to be willing to serve. The first shall be last, he says, and the last first. Just like in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Jesus turns it upside down. The ones who don't seem like they should be blessed are actually the ones that he calls blessed. Not so with you, Jesus tells them in Matthew 20. But the greatest among you will be your servant. And then he says, all you're going to do, all I'm asking you to do is to follow my example. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, to be first, to be at the top, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he tells us that we are to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him and to be servant, to be willing to be at the bottom. It's exactly what the Son of God did when he left heaven and came to earth. But I do want us to look at some passages from 1 Peter today. First of all, in chapters 1 and 2. You know, uh, Danny was talking about the Danny Do List and... uh, the things that Jesus tells us, we are to do these things. This do in remembrance of me. And one of the primary things that he tells us to do is to be willing to put ourselves at the bottom, to be willing to allow others to succeed or to have glory or to have their preferences made or whatever it might be in order that we might be behind them in order that we might maintain faithfulness to the one who went the way of the cross rather than the way of the world. 1 Peter 1 begins this this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And so the contrast starts right there. They're exiles. Preached a sermon series in 2017 on the book of First Peter entitled Resident Immigrants because that's what they, we are. 
That's what they were. They're from Palestine, but they've been forced to move. They're exiles now, living in a land that's not their own, around people whose language is not their, who worshiped gods that they did not. And so when they went there, probably the northern central part of modern-day Turkey, they were at the bottom. They were exiles. They were immigrants, but they weren't just immigrants for a while. They were going to be there, kind of like the exiles were in Babylon that Jeremiah addresses. So Peter is writing First and Second Peter specifically to them. These resident immigrants, these resident exiles who are in a land that's not their own, around people whose values they do not share, and yet they're going to be there a while. How do you survive there? How do you live faithfully to God there? How do you maintain your values and your convictions there? And so he goes on. He begins by telling, reminding them that they are chosen, that God has chosen them. Chosen them, but I thought you said they were exiles. I thought you said they were at the bottom. That's right. <laughs> the way the world measures it, that is exactly right. But the way God measures it, they were chosen. They were special. Praise be, verse 3, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that all sounds great. And then he says this, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Oh, oh okay. So it's not here then. That, that's right. That's right. We receive blessings here, and Scripture is filled with those. But don't expect that to translate into everything going well in my life, into me receiving a, a position that's towards the top, not the bottom. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Chosen, yes. Blessed in the heavenly realms, yes. Kept in, in heaven for you, yes. But for now, you may have to suffer. You may have to face all kinds of trials. And they were. They were. Verse 7, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which per perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's when it's going to happen. Perhaps before, perhaps not. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These are people whose lives were being threatened because of their faith. These were people who were at the bottom of the social scale. They had zero power. Zero. In their community. And yet Peter tells them, now you believe in Jesus and because of that... You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, knowing that you are receiving the end result of this faith, the salvation of your souls. We skip down to verse 13, and there is this call to holiness and faithfulness. 
Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The great holiness code. Again, it begins with God, begins with Jesus Christ. And then we live that way. We follow his example. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, verse 21, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Today I ask, in what is your faith and hope? Because if it's in anything physical, anything that has to do with just this world, it is not enough. It won't carry you through. And it may be great at times, but at other times it will be horribly lacking. But for these people who had nothing, who were nothing based on what their society thought of them, their hope and their belief were in God. And because of that, they had this eternal and inexpressible joy inside of them, that none of the external pressures and stresses and circumstances could threaten. In chapter 2, we see that call for them to be faithful to this calling. First Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among them. Even though they consider you to be the bad guys, be good bad guys. Live such good lives among them that even though they challenge you, even though they threaten you, even though they say they think ill of you, in their hearts they will know that it's just not true because they see your good life lived out in the midst of a community that does not acknowledge the goodness of your life. Can we do that? The next verse begins with the S word. Submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are set by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. We don't like that S word. We don't like to submit. 
We don't like to serve. We don't like to put others towards the front of the line and us take a place in the background. We don't like to not get our way. That's human nature. That's human nature. It's not the way of God. The way of Jesus Christ is to submit, to serve, to sacrifice for the sake of others. Again, just like in verse 12, he repeats himself in verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Wait, by doing good? You mean not by fighting power with power, fire with fire? As low as they sink in their vocabulary and their attitude and their selfishness and their disrespect, we get right down there with them? I thought that's how you defeat the bad cause. That's not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is that in the midst of that horrible, horrible treatment and disrespect, we live such good lives that they see that. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I would rather call them a bunch of ignorant, foolish people. (laughs) And Jesus just smiles and says, yeah, I know how you feel. (laughs) Trust me. But Bill, that's not the way. It's not the way. It's the way of the world. It's not the way of the cross. Verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. What does that mean? Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This was an emperor, Caesar, who was trying to have them all killed. And Peter says, live respectful, good lives. Answer their evil with good. As Grant shared during our shepherd's prayer time, our impact is sometimes immeasurable. And you may think you're not making any difference whatsoever. And yet when they see your good life, scripture says, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine, he said. By doing good deeds in the midst of that community. Peter remembers that and says in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They may not ever glorify you. But you see, that's, that's not our calling. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to get them to glorify God. Verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Being a good bad guy may put you at the bottom, but secondly, the price you pay may be even greater, maybe even greater than that. Still in 1 Peter, we turn to chapter 4, and we read this, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, sexual immorality, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Then note verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. I don't want anybody to heap abuse on me any more than the next person. But that's not our calling. That's not our choice. Our calling is to live faithful lives. And that faithfulness, that conviction, that desire to serve, to love, to be people of high moral standards, those things the community around us may reject. And they may even be surprised that we live that way. Does that sound familiar? Are you feeling more and more like somebody with biblical convictions that will stand for sexual morality, that will stand for honesty, that will stand for answering evil with good? That when people are around that, they're surprised? Like they've not really seen that before? That was the people Peter writes to here. Skipping down in 1 Peter 4 to verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Why would he say that? Because every scripture on your list here is a reminder that Jesus said this from the beginning. This is how they're going to treat you, because this is how they treated me. And if you're going to hold to these kinds of convictions that are countercultural, you may have to pay a price for it. The question is... Are you willing to do that? But rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Again, a reminder that Jesus suffered for these same values, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, verse 16, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to what? Do good. But Bill, that that doing good causes me to suffer. It causes me to be at the bottom. It causes me to lose position. It it causes me to lose friends. It it causes people to laugh at me, to think I'm old-fashioned and that I, I believe in something that's archaic. But you have committed yourself to your faithful creator. So continue to do that. Whatever the reaction. Only three places in scripture is the word Christian actually used. I just read one of them. Did you catch that? 1 Peter 4 verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian. If your Christian values are so strong that you will not let the values of the world take them over. You may have to suffer for that. But if you suffer as a Christian, 
It is a call to rejoice. James says, consider it all joy when you suffer like this, because that suffering ultimately brings endurance and strength of faith. Jesus warned us that this would happen. Paul says many times, including 2 Corinthians 6, where he recounts his sufferings in the name of Jesus. The book of Acts is filled with those examples. Why would he do such thing? Because of what he says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so this quote from G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Let me repeat that. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Many people feel like, for some reason, unbeknownst to Jesus and the writers of the Gospels, that to believe in Jesus makes your life easier. And from a spiritual perspective, that's right, if our trust is firmly placed in our God. But externally, it may not be easier at all. It may be difficult. Are we willing to hold on to it in the midst of that difficulty? Are we willing to be good even when those around us think that we're the bad guys? Stephen McAlpine writes, It isn't hard to think of examples of injustices experienced by Christians in workplaces or universities just for holding to beliefs that were considered perfectly normal a mere five minutes ago. (laughs) Sounds right. But too often there is also a sense of rage among Christians giving the impression that what is going on is a zero-sum game. That if we don't win this culture war, everything is over. That is how earthly politics works, not God's kingdom. (laughs) Our well-being does not depend on who's in power in this country. Our well-being does not depend on how this culture continues to go. We want things to be better for them and for us. But that's not the source of our well-being. It's not the source of our confidence. It's not the source of our hope. And it's not the source of our joy. It's the source of the world's joy. And that's why it's such a surprise when they see our lives made difficult by the faith we hold. And yet we continue to hold it in great joy in spite of how scary it is. Thirdly today, however scary the potential consequences might be, it's worth it. It's worth it. Being good good, bad guys is scary and triumphant. Faith is the victory, we sang out of 1 John 5, that overcomes the world. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In John 16, verse 33. And then Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. The present presence of God's Spirit, McAlpine writes, guarantees the glory to come, whatever the current experience. And so we may experience anger or outrage, but that should not take away our joy. And we should not react with the same. We respond 
with joy. Being good bad guys is sometimes scary, but it should always bring a reaction of joy in knowing that we are blessed with ultimate victory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can we say that? Well, because of what we read in 1 Peter 1, that we're not redeemed with silver and gold, with riches, with power, with position, with honor in this world. We are redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the one who showed that boundless love and boundless grace when he died for our sins on Calvary. So we close today with this great, great hymn, O Victory in Jesus, not in anything else. My Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. This morning, if you need that in your life, we want you to have it come as we stand and sing our song together.